Hi, everyone, and welcome to How the Light Gets In, where we seek to have conversations that crack through the dark. I'm Haven, and I'm really happy you're here. My guest this week, full disclosure, has me fully fangirling. And um, he was the first out trans person to be elected um, as a uh, clergy and bishop of the Lutheran Church, which that's amazing. Um, And so I just wanted to start with how are you? How is life? yeah, I'm doing, I'm doing okay. I'm, I mean, we live in weird times. There's um, still a pandemic going on. There's still a lot of racial injustice going on. There's um, a lot of, uh, a lot of ways in which our world assumes the worst in people. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, there's a lot of people trying to make the world joyful and happy and healthy. And so um we're doing good. We're doing good in my family. Everybody's healthy and um, at school and, and doing the stuff they need to do to keep the, the world turning towards the positive, we hope. Yeah, that is great. And I agree. It's a crazy time yeah. um, with people like you, I think, making it, helping it be good um, sometimes. I was also wondering about um, if you can remember, I'm not sure if it was a while ago or uh, what was it like for you first realizing that you were a queer person? Yeah, I grew up in South Dakota where there are queer people, but they don't talk about it out loud. And um, but that meant that there were a lot of things that people tried not to talk about out loud usually anything that made them different or unusual or um they thought might be talked about by their neighbors people would just try to not talk about and i think um in the in the early 90s uh there the a lot of the role models that were like on TV or in the papers were like very few and far between like Ellen came out that was a big deal but most of the rest of the people that we had heard about were experiencing tragedies right there was the pandemic that still continues of HIV and AIDS uh there was a big a big kind of political turmoil in in the house and congress kind of where LGBTQ people were being used sort of as the vote for us or those scary gay people are going to get you. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the many times in our history that that's happened. And so it it wasn't a thing that sort of occurred to me um, until I was in college. And partly that was because I was like on the debate team and I played in the orchestra. Like I was just a very busy person who ha- was in a lot of different activities. Um, and then I think I first sort of discovered in college maybe the kinds of people that I was attracted to. And so that was my first kind of beginning of of the conversation about queerness. But words like 
like trans meaning like an umbrella of people who are on a varied spectrum of how they describe their gender didn't exist in the same way there really was just this idea that you either were someone who was queer kind of on a sexuality spectrum or you were a person who would go from one extreme binary to another like you would Mm -hmm transition from Barbie to Ken or from Ken to Barbie with no stops in between on the train. And, Mm. and the idea of there being no stops in between on the train did not make sense to me. And so it was a much longer journey. I think in terms of transness, like there are so many factors that go into it. There's no world where you get to like, just live inside a safe place where the world's not going to hurt you. And you just figure out how would you live if the world didn't exist? That's not like an option we get. But in addition to that, there's like, do I want to have children in my future? And what kinds of clothes do I want to wear? And what kind of safety or lack of safety will happen if I wear the kinds of clothes that I want to wear? Okay, well, if I want to say safer, what kind of compromises do I have to make to what I imagine being my ideal haircut or or outfits or any of those things. And, and so it's, it's been something that has changed over time. It changes based on different, different places where I feel safe or places where I don't feel safe. It's also changed based on my own willingness to like, take some crap, if that's Mm -hmm. the way to say it. So like, I think being, being publicly out in a church space is is particularly complicated because sometimes the queer community mistrusts you because churches have been so terrible and then the church community mistrusts you because they don't really get lgbtq stuff um and and i think that makes it a very lonely space to be if you're both out about your spirituality and about your your sexual diversity or your gender diversity, then it it makes it a smaller and smaller number of people who you can kind of relate to or know for sure you're going to be safe around. And so I think as as I have sort of lived in safer areas, like I live in San Francisco now, there are some parts of my life that I can be freer with in conversation. There are other parts of my life, like when I take on roles as a public figure, like when I was elected a uh, a bishop and I was the first transgender bishop, it made headlines all over the globe, which was a different kind of unsafeness um, of people just paying attention to what you're up to. Um, there have been different times where I have to do a hard, complicated thing and I have to be less out loud or online about my personal life just so that I can be a safe person. Like, I don't want ever like my street to be in the background of a picture because um, when my work life is less safe emotionally and physically than my kind of ability to communicate where I am becomes less less free if that makes sense and so like I think of it as sort of changing how much I share about myself in real time how much what kinds of things do I share like over a period of time like and what kinds of things um, do I have the emotional capacity to be braver in where I don't care if I'm going to get bad feedback if that makes sense so it's it's a 
And I share that on purpose because I think there are a lot of people who are trans or who are queer who feel that ethically they have to share who they are or they have to wear the, the things that are authentic to them. And then they don't have the emotional capacity to be able to do that in a particular time and space, but they believe that as a justice issue, they have to be their fullest self. And even for someone like me, who has been very public about my queerness, there are times and spaces and ways in which I am choosing safety over the most authentic choice. Like there are times when I can say, hey, that's not my pronoun. And there are other times where um, it's not safe to be able to say that out loud. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I can definitely relate to that in, in different settings where um, there might be, you know, church people that um, I just know are not open to that. It's like, well, I guess I need to, you know, hide that part, even though it doesn't feel nice, but to be safe is way more important. <laughs> yeah. And there are, there are moments where like my personal choices have shifted and then what I'm willing to be called, like what I'm willing to put up with changes. Right. And so like, if I've had a prescription change or I've had a, a change to my ID, like my physical ID card, there might be ways in which I've been kind of caring for the world and saying like, don't worry about it like just get it right next time. And then I have a different, I'm in a different place in the future mm-hmm. where IDs have changed or physical characteristics are changed. And that's not where I am anymore. And it feels more abrasive to have people kind of do those same things. And so I, I noticed inside of myself that some of the ways in which I've apologized for being uh, unique or ap- trying to make other people's lives easier by saying oh you know don't worry about it if you got the wrong pronoun in the past um that there were certain sort of life changes in my life where I was less willing to tolerate some of those behaviors mm-hmm. and so I needed to like say out loud these are my pronouns now and this is how I'm going to be treated now and yeah um yeah. absolutely I was also wondering as a person of faith myself Mm-hmm. Um, what that process was like for you becoming or even choosing to become or to be a person of faith yourself? I mean, I think my journey has been a little bit like, like Jonah, where many people saw that they thought I should be a faith leader. Um, I remember when I was in high school youth group, people would be like, yeah, you have to be a pastor. You have to be a pastor. And it was, there were like, it, it became clear kind of soon after that I was also going to be queer and and this was a community that was not okay with that and um, it was always interesting to me the way that they were so certain that I should be a faith leader that the way that they would talk about it is say well we know for certain you're supposed to be a pastor so that means you need to not be gay or you need to not be queer right and so that was always interesting to me in South Dakota when they were debating whether or not LGBTQ folk could be pastors, people would give speeches and they would say, well, we think Megan's going to be a great pastor, but we're nervous about other LGBTQ people. So Megan should be allowed to be a pastor and other people should be prevented from it. And so 
I always had this weird kind of relationship of where people, even in their like saying discriminatory weird things, would be like, but we know you're like you're being a pastor is not in question. What's in question is like whether or not other people that we imagine are terrible could follow this same path. And I've always felt really strange about that because it still hurts that people mm-hmm. say gross things, mm-hmm. even if they're affirming a part of you. And so I have always felt like people have been kinder about recognizing that I should be doing kind of pastoral work than they have about the fact that it comes in this body. Mm-hmm. And I, as a person who who is also disabled, like I feel like it's very much equivalent to people feeling like my queerness is a disability because the church is just notoriously not good at trying to figure out how to care for people who have mm-hmm. just different ways of being in the world. And so I think what it is, is that church spaces, once you're in the community, they want to love you fully. But in order to get in the community, they sort of put you through the ringer. And instead of doing the work before you arrive so that you truly feel welcome when you get there, a lot of faithful spaces will wait and use whomever is the first through the door as their education tool about what they ought to be doing (laughs) and use the fact that no one has made it through that gauntlet as a like, we'll see, we were right all along that they weren't Mm -hmm. supposed to be in this space. It's sort of like like a congregation that doesn't have sign language is like, well, but no one here needs sign language, right? But no one can come there until you have sign language. Like it's, it feels a lot like, like that for me. The the good news for me in my personal journey is that like I have from a very young age felt like I was deeply connected to God and that God was deeply connected to me and that nothing was going to shake that like mm-hmm. so strong that I have the ability to just say like God and I are good. Like your opinion about how you think God and I are is way less important to me about how God and I are, right? And so that gives me a boldness that allows me to take some of the crap from churchy people and to sort of have a patience. I feel like I have a patience of like, well, God and I are good. So you'll probably get there, but it's, it's less, I care a lot about all the people in the church, but I care more that God and I are good, if that's the best way to put it. And so I think having a really strong personal relationship has been really helpful but I don't know how much of that is like a safety net because church communities can really put people through meat grinders yes (laughs) um I again I really feel what you're saying about like um because I myself have been through that you know gauntlet in a way of Like, well, we weren't going to educate ourselves, but now you're here, so do it. (laughs) Yeah, why don't you tell us what to do now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is yeah, yeah. It's yeah, it's really weird, (laughs) and like, especially like, um, also with that feeling of that, I'm God and I are, we're doing fine. We're 
that's um that's not the problem yep and then um hearing from people that like well but there is a problem because we see problems Mm, no (laughs) (laughs) yeah thanks for your feedback but god and i are good still yes exactly and it's hard to it's hard and it's exhausting to Mm -hmm. feel like you have to do that work of convincing other people of what they proclaim is true for everyone but they're not willing to admit that their bias is about you, right? Mm-hmm. They're not willing to admit they have a bias that prevents them from applying all of those, like Jesus loves the little children. Well, all of them or just the ones you're imagining, right? And right. and so I think it's interesting to me that there is this sort of um, innocent until proven guilty for people who are already of of sort of more predominant characteristics and a guilty until proven innocent for pretty much everybody else yes mm-hmm. so switching um gears a little bit i know that you and your wife mm-hmm. have kids yeah and um i'm just wondering um as someone who's never really had the experience myself mm-hmm. and frankly probably will never have the experience Mm -hmm. um i'm just wondering what is that the queer parent that experience it's an it's an interesting experience um we live in san francisco so it's maybe a little easier than if we did it in a community where our existence um was different um our our kids go to a school that is primarily kind of queer families and queer teachers so that again makes it a slightly different experience but um I think it's it's some of the same like joys and heartaches of every family where you have to figure out like who's going to do which parts and are you going to be really strict or are you not going to be really strict and can they really have more candy and all of those kind of things that go along with it I think what for me is is kind of terrifying as a public person like from time to time I get death threats and and that was a lot easier to navigate when I didn't have children Mm -hmm. and it's a lot scarier and different when I do have children and so um we do a lot of really good kind of things to like protect our privacy and to keep ourselves safe and and my kids know a lot of things about how to help with that process um but it, it it is scary when there is a time when people can say whatever they want about queer people and there's not, oh, like we live in San Francisco where in order to get a restraining order for like threats of violence, someone has to like physically hurt you before you can get that restraining order. And so you can't just get a restraining order from threats, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's that I think is scarier and harder than if we lived in a space where if someone was making threats, you could kind of have like a restraining order to make sure they couldn't be within a certain distance of you. Um, But I think what I like about it is that it allows kids to kind of imagine whatever their life is going to be in as creative a way as possible. Like, it, we we so often try to like tell kids that anything is possible and to to be a part of a family that is sort of like living out that I think is helpful for for kids to kind of keep their imagination going 
And, um, and so I think that's a really lovely thing. I think there are a lot of kids who deserve to be adopted. And so I think it's really lovely that queer folk, at least in this state for now, are able to do adopting. And I think adoption is a really helpful way to like help our world become more equitable. Um, there's a really high rate of kids who are in the foster care system and um, or who are adopted becoming homeless for the rest of their life. Like it's an almost 98% certainty. Um, and, and so I think like there are some really great gifts in it. Um, there is a joy that comes from, uh, while not everyone who wants to be a parent is able to become a parent, for queer folk, uh, it's, it's really unlikely that pregnancy will happen as a surprise. Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, it was an emergency and, and a tragedy probably in the way that that happened. And so there is something really lovely and beautiful for a child to know that they were wanted and chosen. And um, it's a great way to start out in life. And I wish every kid could experience that. And I don't think that's what every kid experiences. And so I hope more kids will get to experience that in any type of family that they have. Absolutely. And um, I mean, I know I'm just, I'm on the outside looking mm -hmm. into what you yeah. um, post and things, but I, I think I see that for sure. Yeah. And um, in your family and what has been shown to me about that so I think yeah. you're doing it <laughs> we try we try yeah. And, yeah and we're the kind of like because the way that we that my family sort of lives publicly our motto is like that our our mistakes is part of what makes us healthy mm -hmm. to be able to like acknowledge that uh, that are going through something hard like we're not posting things online that are the biggest, deepest wounds of what's going on in our life in any given day. We're posting things that are kind of within our emotional capacity to like mm -hmm. talk to other people about and are good lessons on purpose um, for other people who are going through hard stuff. And so I think being able to sort of be an honest and work in progress group of people I think is really helpful for people. One of the things that I thought was a really lovely symptom of the pandemic, because there were a lot of not lovely symptoms of the pandemic, but one of the lovely symptoms of the pandemic is that people who didn't ever have the opportunity to see a queer family, when church came home and we had church in our living room, we made the intentional decision to like, we could have done it where it was like this, where it was like a close up on faces. Mm -hmm. And instead, what we chose to do is show our entire living room. So you could see a family and that queer people who wouldn't normally get to see what queer families are like, because we're not on TV a lot. And if we are on TV, it's like just the weird dramatic parts of life, not the normal boring parts of life. And there were so many people who tuned into kind of our like worship from home experience just because it they got to see a queer family who was faithful at in like the normal and the boring and the and the like 
the times when the kids wouldn't be quiet because they were like every kid at church sometimes, right? And so I think there were a lot of people who expressed that being able to see our family just be a family and be normal um, was healing for people who had had felt like they hadn't ever been able to like see something like that before. So yes, for sure. So I won't be going into any sort of detail about um, when your appointment as bishop ended. Mm-hmm. I do. I am curious um, because, again, as an outsider, it yeah. seemed like a crazy thing. Yeah. Um, so, what was the feeling for you? Um, Yeah, I think I think being a bishop who's really in the public spotlight is a tough thing. It's an exhausting. I was in a situation where there were several issues of of misconduct that were sort of left for me to deal with. And they were issues of misconduct that were very complicated and intersectional, Mm -hmm. where like on on the one hand, um, you could believe victims. And on the other hand, uh, a person was saying that all of the allegations were stemming towards racism. And so I was trying to navigate the best I could between very difficult, uh, what I saw as harm reduction scenarios, right? If you make this choice, it will be bad in this way. If you make this choice, it'll be bad in this way. So what are the ways that we could kind of move forward that would care for as many people as possible and um, be harm reduction, even though it was still gonna be harm. And so um, unfortunately, during the time when I took office, there were a number of those situations. Um, One had a lot of lobbying and uh, stewing behind it. And it felt like, um, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like this where people could only imagine the worst was happening behind the scenes. And that's the hard part of being a bishop is a lot of what happens is confidential. Mm-hmm. And when people trust you, they think that's great. That's great. You're taking care of things, right? If people don't trust you for whatever reasons, um, then they assume the worst. And and what happened is we had month after month after month after month of people assuming the worst. Mm-hmm. And I have felt that way a number of times in my life. Um And a lot of that had to do with the fact that I am trans and that it was easier for people to assume the worst. It reminded me of um, if if a trans person walks into a bathroom and the only thing you can imagine them doing is something bad and it doesn't occur to you, they might just need to use the bathroom, then that's a broken imagination. It's imagination that only assumes the worst in this kind of person. I think I had a lot of sadness at the end of my time being bishop that there were people who sort of only could imagine the worst in a person like me. And it seemed not possible in the time frame or in the circumstance for people to imagine other options. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I think that's a heartbreak that will be there for some time, I think. um, But I also think that like, I'm grateful to have been able to be a bishop. Like uh, someone's got to be the first kind of into a room. And um, there was nothing that people were trying to hurl at me in angry ways 
that maybe I hadn't dealt with on a tinier level, but it got very much amplified. I'm very disappointed in, in um, the institutional church that really has some problematic policies that need to be changed. And this, this um, I don't know, the politics of making it a person who's a problem rather than policies that are a problem has always been something that's really disturbing to me. But through it all, God and I are good. Like we always were good. I felt um, I felt in some ways like I was called to be someone who could make hard choices in a complicated time and who could kind of go through that kind of storm without being angry at people, without being resentful, without wanting to retaliate, without... Um, and, and I think a lot of that is because I had studied nonviolence for so many years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I tried to just think about that time as like, if people are advocating for rules to change that I also think need to be changed, I'm not going to argue with them just because uh, some of the facts are wrong, mm-hmm. uh, because I want those rules to change too. And their harm is real, even if some of the facts are wrong. Right. And so, um, I hope that that anti-racism work continue into the future. I hope that there will be more trans people who can be in leadership in our church, um, but also like the level of toxicity of being the person who's continuously being misgendered, who's continuously having the folk um, that they are serving assume the worst in them. Uh, it's a lot for people to carry. And I carried it for a long time. And I also am so grateful that now I get to work in a church that uses proper pronouns for me and uh, serves in the Black church tradition. And we're not in an argument. I'm not uh, having to wait to do anti-racist work until other people are on board. I'm at a place where that's what they've been doing for decades. And so I feel like I am able to kind of view the whole situation from a better place. I think the having worked for 20 years to climb up a ladder in a church and to have people be able to pack your boxes in a day and have you start over. Um, it's a, it's a humbling experience. Um, but it's also taught me that I want to be in partnership with folk who, who want to do the work, who want to be anti-racist and who want to, um, be a truly welcoming space because there's only so long that vulnerable people like trans people and BIPOC people can work inside of a system that's a meat grinder before they need a rest mm-hmm. and and they can come back usually and continue that work but I'm in the place of rest and wellness and um, being so delighted and joyful that to work in a congregation now that is on board with caring for people and believing victims. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's really good to hear that you're in that space now and not out or not in the one that, again, was so. Uh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I still carry the trauma and I'm still doing the work on, on Absolutely. healing from some of the uh extremity like some of the some of the things that were done to me that were unsafe have not been made public in part because I'm doing my own kind of trauma care work on that Mm -hmm. and so um I think 
I think I have, I have disappointment that that environment was allowed mm -hmm. and that no one spoke up and said, this is unacceptable behavior. This mm -hmm. isn't how we treat human beings. This is not how we treat bishops. Um, and I wish I was more surprised that it was allowed to happen in a church setting, but, um, but we'll get there. We'll get there. Queer people are, are making great strides and we'll get there. It's just not yet for, for my, for my circumstances. Yeah. 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 Um, totally. Yeah. Um, so switching gears a little bit, yeah. um, you appeared on uh, my favorite episode of Queer Eye. Mm -hmm. Like, honestly, I've watched it maybe five times because it's so good. Yeah. Um, Isn't Noah the best? Yes. <laughs> um, and uh, you said one of my favorite things that I've ever heard um, to this pastor why are you telling yourself this child of God? Mm -hmm. And I cry every single time I hear that. Yeah. It just uh, touches a part that's like, yeah, why am I allowing this to be in my own mind when I would not say this to, to anybody else? Yeah. Anybody else. Yeah. yeah. And the thing that I was wondering is how do you keep that in mind for your own self? Because yeah. it is really hard. It is hard. <laughs> and it's, it, I mean, number one, I have a therapist and my therapist reminds me what is discrimination from the outside mm -hmm. that I don't have to keep for myself, right? And I think some church spaces have told queer people you're not allowed here because you're not good enough. And then when we work our patukas off, right? When we do everything we can to act like queer superheroes in the church, uh, those same institutions will say, yeah, but now you're too arrogant because you worked this hard, right? You're working hard means you wanted it too much and you're wanting it too much means you're, you're or whatever the, the names of the day are. You work too hard and that now means you're bad. And, and, I think when we realize that the voice that's saying that is discrimination, then I don't want to keep that inside of me, right? There's a voice in my head that tells me I said the wrong thing at a party. It tells me I'm not working hard enough, even if I'm working longer than everyone else. There's a voice in my head that says, even if I like nailed, nailed, like I did the best I could answering questions in a podcast there's a voice in my head that's going to say later i think you just said the dumbest stuff you've ever said right and that's it's not because we have something in our head that's like empirically able to tell whether or not we did good or not it's because when that voice panics it sends these really yummy cortisol chemicals into our body and it makes us feel a little bit better and we are so much trained by the world, by the newspapers that just tell us the bad news. We're trained by all of the things that send off that cortisol that when we critique ourselves, we're doing ourselves a favor or we're doing better. 
And I think we have also heard too many times from people that like caring for ourselves is selfish or wrong or makes us um, too fragile or whatever the thing is that people have said about our soothing ourselves or comforting ourselves. And so I think that's the place where that comes from is it's a little easier to see from the outside. So it's a little easier for me to say to someone like Noah or every single day on my social media is to post something positive and say, hey, look out for this. And then in my own life, I have people who can say it to me. Um, But also I like work actively to try to to stretch my imagination. Cause there are times when my imagination for other people is very limited. Like if I have to wait too long in a line somewhere, I imagine it's about me or like, I imagine it's on purpose, right? Or the person who cuts me off on the freeway, um, whatever it is, it's easy for me to imagine the world is against me. And so I actively try when I'm certain I know what has happened. I actively try to think of at least five things that are the opposite. So if I'm convinced a person hates me or I said the wrong thing at a party, I'll say, well, what's at least five other options that could have also been happening that have nothing to do with me? And it might be, oh, the person made a face when I said something. So my brain says I said the wrong thing. Well, maybe that person farted and they hoped no one heard, right? Maybe um, they're, they're thinking about something at work, right? That they didn't finish. Maybe they... Um, forgot to wear underwear that day and they're just feeling self-conscious, right? Like there are a thousand, there's literally a thousand things that could be going on for that other human being mm-hmm. that have nothing to do with whether or not I said the right thing or the wrong thing. And maybe I did say the wrong thing, but what am I going to do to fix it at that point, right? I can do my best in the future. I can try to not say that wrong thing again. Like I can, I still can be committed to doing all of that work and not have a brain that always is assuming the worst. Um, Because if we do that, if we are always feeding the part that says, oh yeah, that's true, I must be wrong. Um, And I can do this exercise because my personal bodily composition isn't one that is prone to anxiety or to depression. So I'm not saying every single person has the ability to retrain things if the chemicals in your brain got their own vibe, right? This Mm -hmm. is just an activity that I do. And, um, and it's something that I try to do with my kids, like, right, when they tell me a story of some fight they got in on the playground, to just say, is there any possibility that other things could have gone been going on for this person? And so, I mean, I think our society in general just needs to start trying to imagine, I mean, Jesus wants us to like imagine the best in other people, but most of us aren't Jesus. So let's start with just that this person's slightly better than we imagined and try to grow from there. Um, but that's the thing that I try to do. I agree that um, things like that are super helpful. And it reminds me of um, something that I try to do uh, in my own mind is I say and a lot <laughs> mm-hmm. that um yeah, I'm feeling crappy that this one thing happened or what I perceived this one thing happened. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and also maybe it wasn't that what you were saying, like maybe so many other scenarios yeah, could be happening. Yeah. yeah. And we need friends in our lives who just let us vent. Mm-hmm. Like, 
you got to have at least one person in your life who lets you just imagine the worst in people and doesn't judge you for that because you got to just get it out mm-hmm. and not let it be stuck inside of you. And so get it out, but don't take it back. Right? Yeah. Think it once, but don't think it always. Right. Yes. Getting to the final question here. This has been so much fun. Um, so this podcast is about the connections conversations that we have that crack through all the dark and um things that are happening in the world today or like in our own minds you know and I um my final question for you is as a queer person of faith what what are those things and those people that you can feel the light like from or through? Yeah, one of my go-to um, folk that I like to always tap into when things are hard is, is Baird Rustin. Mm-hmm. Baird Rustin was a, a nonviolence leader who uh, worked with union organizers and learned from Gandhi in the 60s. And he was a gospel singer. Um, and he was gay and he planned the march on um, Washington. He um, was the one who planned the conference where Martin Luther King Jr. does his I Have a Dream speech. And he persevered all kinds of public name calling. His name was taken through the mud way more than mine, which is always good to remember. Um, but he did something really cool. Um, he he did a couple things. One, he assumed that people were protesting they would like be so excited that they would forget to eat, right? And so he would just get volunteers to make hundreds and hundreds of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. So that like, because he knew the purpose of what they wanted to do was really important, Mm -hmm. but a couple of crabby people because they were hungry could also ruin any well-laid plans. And so he would just care about people's bodies in a way that I thought was really awesome. Mm -hmm. Um, And he, was never content when when rules changed because he knew that like rules changes don't always mean hearts change. And so he, when the laws changed and it said that buses couldn't be segregated anymore, he coordinated a group of people to ride every bus in the United States. And then they kept a log of which buses still segregated and which buses didn't. Then they went back to federal court and they made sure that the law actually was um, put into real practice all over the United States. And so I love somebody who does the like nerdy behind the scenes work, like not as famous as Martin Luther King Jr. Most people can't think of speeches that he's done, but he did the real work. And I think I'm more that nerdy kind of person who's like, let's just, let's fix the thing. Like for me, if it takes less time to fix the problem than to argue about it, I would rather go fix it. Um, And so for me, it's those kinds of people who like roll up their sleeves and get some stuff done. Like Audre Lorde um, and her poetry has been really important in my life because I think she's good at naming the hard and the broken and the it still hurts, but I'm more fabulous-ness. I mean, um, and unapologetically queer, I think is a really good one. Um, and I think there's also some really great leaders who, who have been through, through hard stuff. And 
I think the longer that I live and the more that I see how, um, how like one kind of weird moment in the journey isn't enough to take it all down, uh, that you can, you can do good things your whole life, no matter the hiccups that happen. I, it, those are more the stories that I like collecting, the ones where people go through the hard. Like a lot of people know Bishop Gene Robinson was the first openly gay bishop. Very few people know that after his first year as a bishop, it was so stressful he had to go to rehab, right? And so, but to know that people can do hard things and um, that that people have rises and falls and that no one moment is the moment that they're going to be judged on. Like this idea that like even God ain't going to judge you on your worst moment, at least in my theology. Some people think that's the case, but I don't um, because Jesus was someone who hung out, hung out with the tax collectors and the sinners. And, um, and I, so I, I like knowing stories where people kind of go through those ups and downs. St. Francis has a moment where uh, he goes from being this very wealthy um, son of a of a tailor and so he's got all these really fancy clothes and it, in order to like become the saint francis that we know the like poor person who hangs out with with those who have different diseases and ailments on the outskirts of society he like is wearing all these fashionable clothes he goes to the town hall and he throws all his clothes off and then he becomes a, a monk essentially through nakedness being rebirthed in the church like all that language about being born again that very conservative people use is very like get naked and do stuff language in the bible uh so it's kind of funny but um i love this image of saint francis sort of casting off these really beautiful garments and then doing a new thing where like he's gonna get called names but he's gonna be faithful and so stories like that that show people needing to go towards towards the name calling or towards the hard thing and that they make it through on the other side those are stories that really buoy me up and remind me about the beatitudes talking about like blessings coming in the midst of persecutions or name calling and, and things like that i wish god had a better way to do it because i think you know we could live without all the bad stuff named in the beatitudes and just get the blessings maybe but um but I, I like reading those stories of people who persevere through the hard thing and keep going, despite mm -hmm. whatever it is the world says. Yeah, I, that's really great. I love that. Yeah. Um, also, I do have one more thing yeah. that I just thought of while you were talking. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I know this story, but um, behind you are all those... Um, colorful threads on your blinds so um for the listeners uh what yeah. what are those and what do they represent well each string is a thousand deaths from covid kind of worldwide it's it's less um statistically accurate as it was a couple of months ago but and there's also like way more than you can tell like this is like maybe a hundred strands next to each other. Um, and, and we put them up because in the middle of the pandemic, there was, it was very difficult to sort of quantify grief. Um, it also has been very apparent through this pandemic that the people who have 
been affected the most by it and had the most significant deaths are people of color. And so they're bright, colorful rainbow uh, strands of yarn. Um, and it reminded us of like the quilts that were made after slavery to tell the stories and the quilts that were made um, to remember those who died of HIV and AIDS and feeling like maybe we haven't yet found the artistic way that we're going to grieve this kind of current loss in our world, um, but that we need some kind of art and beauty to be able to do that. And so, so my kids and I, we've been putting up string to kind of quantify the ways that, that this pandemic pandemic's been really hard for people. Mm -hmm. That's, I love it. And it's just, yeah. Um, had to ask you about that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, that was actually my last thing. Very good. So thank you so much for being here. And again, this has been just so great to meet you and talk to you. And honestly, life goals. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, blessings for you and, and for all that you're up to. I know that you're always rooting for people online and it's such a wonderful gift for people and um, blessings for those who are watching. Anyone who's watched through this long deserves it. Right. Thank you so much for joining me this time on how the light, how the light gets in. Um, until next time, please take care of yourselves and if you can take care of each other.